NASA is an organization that has always had lofty goals. This time, it was to send a new couple satellites aboard a spaceship to orbit the Earth to collect some cosmological data. January 28, 1986, seemed like a day like any other. It, the sun was out, people were crowding, the sky was clear. Three, two, one, blast off. And the space shuttle blasted off, heading toward Earth's orbit, outside of Earth's atmosphere. Crowds watched in amazement from the launching pad zone, and even people watched from their living room through their TVs. It was amazing. It was incredible. But some seconds into the flight, there was suddenly a flash of light. The Challenger had caught fire and split apart. And America grieved that fatal day as seven people lost their lives. Upon investigation of the crash, it was found that it was the smallest and simplest component that had failed and caused the fatal accidents. That the O-rings, uh, a simple O-ring, one you put in your plumbing, one you put in a gas pipe to keep fluids or gases from leaking out, a little rubber piece had failed to prevent gas from leaking out of the fuel tank. And so what had happened is that as the gas started leaking out of the side of the fuel tank, the gas had caught fire and engulfed the Challenger in flames. It took only one oversight of the simplest component to bring about the tragic end of seven souls and years of planning. What does this story teach us about life? A small error can create a large problem. A little compromise can lead to great ruin. And one mistake can destroy a life. Jesus told his disciples this, told his disciples this way in Matthew 16, 6, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul explained to the Galatians in 5, 9, why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What were both Jesus and Paul concerned about when making such statements? that professing Christians would be taken captive by false and deceptive teaching. And so in our passage today in 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 10, Paul exposes the dangers of false doctrine and those who teach it so that you might not be deceived by it nor be a participant in it. And so we have four points for today. The first one is going to be the content of false teaching. The second will be the characteristics of false teachers. The third will be the counterexample of a false belief. And the fourth will be the consequences of a false belief. And so that's our outline today. And so we're going to start in verses two through three, or the second part of verse two through three, uh, with the content of false teaching. And Paul says this, teach and urge these things. Paul is referring to everything that he's told Timothy from chapter five, teach and urge these things. One of the pressing concerns, why in verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so 
Paul was warning Timothy about false teaching and the content of it. And there's always three things that mark the content of false teaching. The first one is that it always advances falsehood. It advances falsehood. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, a strange doctrine, is what Paul is saying. And so false doctrine is always marked by advancing falsehood, by advancing things that are contrary to Scripture. That false teaching grounds itself not in the Word of God, but something else of lesser authority or of plain lie and uh, and non-truth. Second mark is that false teaching always rejects the truth. It denies the authority of Christ, his apostles, and his words. Paul says to Timothy, words that do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think Paul had in mind the exact words of Jesus, but rather the kind of teaching that glorified and exemplified exactly what Jesus taught, the type of authority that God has in, had invested in his apostles and ultimately through the Holy Spirit in his word. And so what these what this false teaching was doing is denying the authority of Christ, especially denying the authority of Paul as an apostle, and ultimately denying the truth in God's word. And the third mark that always comes with false teaching is that it produces an ungodly lifestyle. Paul says at the end of verse 3, and that teaching that accords with godliness. That true teaching, genuine teaching, always leads to a godly lifestyle. And this was not the case of what was happening in Ephesus when Timothy was there. But the thing for us to know and for you to know is that false teaching is usually subtle. Truth mixed with a bit of air. People don't show up one day and they're like, hello, I'm a false teacher. Uh, I would like to teach you some heresy today. So if you just take a seat right back there and listen to all my lying, I would love for you to accept that and go on your way and live your life. That's not how false teaching happens. Typically, false teaching happens not by uh, trying to turn people by degrees of 90 or 180, but by turning people by just a degree of one or two. And you might think, well, one or two degrees, I mean, that's not that big a deal, but it depends really on the distance that you are traveling. Consider this illustration. In 1979, a passenger jet carrying 250 people left New Zealand for a sightseeing flight to Antarctica and back. Unknown to the pilots, however, there was a minor two-degree error in the flight coordinates. This placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots thought they were. As they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to a lower altitude to give the passengers a better look at the landscape. Although both were experienced pilots, neither had made this particular flight before. They had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates had placed them directly in the path of Mount Erebus, an active volcano that rises from the frozen landscape at a height of more than 12,000 feet. Sadly, the plane crashed into the side of the volcano, killing everyone aboard the aircraft. It was a tragedy brought by a minor error, a matter of an only a few degrees. And so it's the same way with false teaching. 
It takes people off the proper course of truth ever so slightly that over the long haul, it ends in destruction and ruin. False teaching sounds like this. And to add a little, a bit of a qualifier here, just because someone has said this or been in error by saying one of these things doesn't automatically make them a false teacher. But typically what happens is false teaching takes one of these ideas and runs, flies a thousand miles with it and ends in a place where people's faith is destroyed in Christ. So false teaching sounds like this. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Jesus is the son of God, but not God himself. Baptism isn't just important, it's essential for salvation. It's not a sin, as long as you don't act on it. It's wrong to judge someone else's beliefs or actions because Jesus taught, do not judge. Your relationship with God is between you and him alone. People who never heard the gospel but were, were good people will still go to heaven. The Bible has instructions that are outdated for teachings such as on food laws, head coverings, and homosexuality. Distinguishing marks of a great church. Good music, dynamic speaker, relatable people. The Bible is great, but it's not enough to help you with problems like ADHD, PTSD, bipolar disorder, depression, or other mental health issues. And you can see in those false teachings, in almost all of them, there's a sliver, an element of truth in there, but also just a, a hint, a sliver of non-truth, of a skewing of the truth. And so the application for you is to consider for yourself, who are the people, what are the things that influence your value, your beliefs, and your thinking in life? How many aspects of your faith and of your faith and your worldview can you really trace back to specific scriptures found in the Bible? How much of what you believe is actually rooted in God's word that you read God's word or, and were made a conclusion from that? Or is it something that you've just always been told or just something you've always assumed to believe is true? So the most common way that people fall into false teaching is not knowing God's word, is not knowing the Bible thoroughly for themselves. They hear the truths presented and they sound right. They sound holy, they sound righteous, but again, without knowing the perfect straight line of scripture, it causes you to swerve ever so slightly. And the longer you continue down that path, the further you will get from the truth and the harder it may be to bring you back. And it even may eventually lead you to a place of complete spiritual destruction. However, it's not just knowledge that Paul was concerned about, but also lifestyle. Paul was also concerned about the lifestyle that false teaching produced. So he moves on to examining and characterizing the lives of these false teachers and their disciples. 
and we find the characteristics of false teachers. 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5 says this, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's a paraphrase, because I think sometimes we get a little, a little lost in the way the Bible has written of what it might sound like to some more modern ears of what Paul was communicating about these false teachers. He is arrogant and ignorant. He enjoys creating controversy for its own sake. He loves arguing. He's a toxic person that encourages people to put each other down, to spur frictions among relationships, stirs individuals toward accusing one another of wrong, and feeds constant arguing, of which the truth doesn't even really matter in the argument. The only thing that ends up mattering to them is being right so that they look pious and holy and good and that they keep getting paid. That's what Paul was communicating. It's not exactly a flattering picture that Paul paints of these false teachers. Their character is one of arrogance, ignorance, combativeness, and disagreeableness. The influence of their character brings about in others jealousy, division, gossip, mistrust, fighting, misfortune, pride, and greed. Now, I want to make an observation here based on the text. Paul is not saying that false teachers are those because they hold a controversial view or because at times they engage in arguments that involve controversial topics. I mean, when you think about the life of Paul, Paul definitely was and would have been considered a controversial person with controversial teachings. You can't ignore that. The amount of times he was beaten or thrown out of the synagogue or thrown out of a city. He was a controversial person. Nor are the false teachers stupid people and Paul thinks they actually know nothing at all. They were clever enough to deceive people, to manipulate them, to get what they want. And that took some serious critical thinking. They were smart. They just applied it toward upholding their own glory rather than the glory of the gospel or rather God's glory. So when Paul is calling them out for being divisive and controversial, he is doing so on the basis of their motivation for such things as a means of personal gain. The false teachers wanted people to admire them, to be dazzled by them, to be impressed by them, and ultimately to keep paying them. Those are the things they wanted. So it's not, so it's not being a false teacher or uh, presenting false teaching if you simply hold a view that may be controversial. There may be very good reason for holding on to the truth when no one else will, when fighting for the truth when no one else will. But the application here is so how, how does Paul's expose, so to speak, of these false teachers apply to your situation? And I, th- I can think of two things with some subcategories here. The first one is 
from the words of Pastor Alistair Begg. He uses this a lot, but he says, beware of people who don't keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. Beware of people who don't keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. Beware of those people who make non-essential doctrines, meaning you don't have to believe this to be a Christian, the center of every single narrative. Don't be the cage-stage Calvinist, which means when you try to turn every single gospel conversation into a conversation about election. Is the doctrine of election important? Yes. Is it essential for someone to get into heaven and to know Christ? No. Don't make it the point of every single conversation. Beware of those who are constantly preoccupied with peripheral issues to the gospel. Things like politics, social activism, peculiar Bible interpretation and speculation, Christian freedoms such as alcohol or schooling methodology for your kids or the type of entertainment you watch. Certainly the health, wealth, and happiness of the prosperity gospel. Beware of those people who are constantly on those issues rather than thinking critically about the gospel and reaching the lost. Yes, Christians should be involved in politics and social activism. Yes, we should consider what type of entertainment we consume. Yes, we should consider difficult texts and how to interpret them. Yes, we should certainly consider that God's primary focus is not to make us healthy, happy, and wealthy. But that is not the primary thing we should focus on. It's peripheral. It sidesteps the gospel. And so beware of people who focus on those things. Beware of those who talk about their ministry or their church as if it's the only one who's got it right. There's no other churches in Orange County who are getting it right, who are doing ministry quite like we are. There's no one else around here who has the theological accuracy that our church does. There's no one around here who has Christians living a real Christian life like the ones at our church. They're the real Christians. We got to actually convert these other people who think they're Christians. And so that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is this. Keep watch over your heart that you are not succumbing to the effects of false teaching. Like it was said, the effects of false teaching are subtle and they influence us from all over the place. And so consider some of these thoughts that are the result that uh, Paul shares of false teaching. That might be a practical example for you to apply to yourself. Do you listen to sermons with an overly critical ear? You're always analyzing the sermon to see what's wrong with it. Do you apply sermons and listen to them to the lives of other people who should hear what the pastor is saying, but not your life, because your life is good? Do you contribute to small group conversation only when you have something insightful to say that makes you look good? Or are you willing to contribute to conversation when you need to confess sin or to confess something that you have thought that is wrong? Do you redirect important conversations to topics that you want to argue about and that you want to think about? Do you assume the worst of people's motivations rather than assuming the best or simply just asking them? 
asking them what their motivation was in doing something? Do you always absorb information, but it never actually uh, manifests in any real change in your life? You sit in the pew every single Sunday, but the sermon never results in change in your life. Do you play the Christian game to try to get what you want? That you, you know there's a certain way in the Christian church that you have to act and you have to be to manipulate people to get what you want. So you act nice, you act humble, you act like you're not mad, but really inside the opposite is the truth. But Paul moves on to explain to Timothy that he actually does agree with the false teachers on one thing. Godliness is a means of gain. Only not a means of gain financially or reputationally, but rather spiritually. But these false teachers were missing the primary investment necessary for such a gain. Contentment. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Notice Paul inseparably connects contentment with godliness to be gained. That's because you can have contentment and not have godliness. You know where I see that in our culture is the minimalist movement. This, uh, this subculture of living in tiny houses, a simplified lifestyle, living in your van or off the grid living. All of these notions are predicated on pursuing contentment by getting more out of less, of simply getting rid of your possessions. And if you've ever watched sort of any of the videos or documentaries on that, you'll notice the way that the people doing that talk, it's a practically a spiritual endeavor. It's practically a religious practice in the way that they describe it and the way that they live. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to live a simpler life. I'm one of them. I'm somebody who loves to get rid of things and it simplifies my life. But if I am not ultimately doing that as a means to somehow glorify God, but rather to pursue contentment entirely devoid of God, that is not a good thing. I'm not doing those things so I can free my life up to serve the Lord. I'm doing those things so I can enrich myself and myself alone. And notice also in verse seven, the contrast, that while our world's reasoning is that if you only rid yourself of what you have, that's how you'll reach contentment. That's how you'll be content. But that isn't Paul's reasoning in verse seven, when he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. You see, the problem Paul is presenting is it's not one of possessions, but one of perspective. Let me say that again. The problem is not one of possessions, but of perspective. And so Paul reiterates in verse seven what the psalmist, what Job, what Solomon have already said in scripture and say, you're born with nothing and you'll die with nothing. You took nothing into the world and you'll take nothing out of it. And he says the the sort of key to unlocking contentment then is to think about your entry and your exit. 
to think about your birth and your death. And so Paul re-elaborates in verse eight, it is only with food and clothing that Christians should be content, just like a newborn child. All they have, all they need to be content to meet their needs is food and clothing. But also on the other end of life, there's a realization that you can take no possession with you, no money, no business that you have built, no trophy, no award, no car, no building, no gadget, no jewelry. However, Paul has pointed out in 1 Timothy 4.8 that there is nothing, there is something you can have in this life. He pointed it out in 1 Timothy 4.8. There is something that you can have in this life and for eternity, and that is godliness that godliness will continue on forever and ever and ever in this life to the next. And so Paul expressed to Timothy that godliness holds promise not just for this life, but for the next life. And so what is your perspective on life? Well, rather than just sort of speculating on, and sort of guesstimating of what your perspective is, I would submit to you, just consider the way that you've lived life thus far. Look back on the past of your life and look at the decisions that you have made and decipher, how have I lived this far? How has, what has been my perspective? Here are some questions to consider. Did you express more thanksgiving than you did complaining? Did you often perceive what were really wants as, and really preferences as things that were absolute needs. Maybe owning a home or having a car, having some extra money for entertainment or vacation or some sort of leisure. Do you spend more energy shaping your body than you did your soul? Did you invest more time in relationships with people than you did investing in your portfolio? Did you pour more effort into your family's spiritual health than you did into its financial stability? Did you find yourself foremost accountable to God, to obey God, to submit to God, to act toward God in everything before you were accountable to your boss, before you were accountable to your spouse or your children? So consider those things, reflect on them, and decide what has my perspective been and what needs to change. But Paul moves on to our last point, the consequences of a false pursuit. That what happens to people who sort of ignore the warning and go ahead and they pursue this financial gain, pursue um, this false notion of riches. And so it says in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I want you to notice something here. Paul is not addressing the people who are already rich, but rather the people who desire to be rich. 
He has something to say for the rich a few verses later in the end of Timothy, and he'll address them. But right here, he's addressing those with the desire to rich. And he's not only addressing those with a desire to be rich, but those who have an all-consuming desire to be rich. And the Greek here literally means lovers of silver. And you know, as Christians, sometimes I think we get sort of confused in the finance realm that somehow if you're poor, that you're more spiritual and you should never have any nice things and you should never be wealthy. And somehow that's the holy thing to do. And that if you're rich, you're evil and something is wrong with you and you've done, uh, you know, some horrible things to get there. And that's just not the case because money is not the problem. The money is just a tool. Money doesn't have morals. Money is amoral, without morals. It's what you do and how you relate to the money that makes something good or bad. Just think of it this like this. Money is like bricks. Brick is a tool. You can take a brick and you can throw it through a window and shatter someone's window. You could take a brick and throw it at someone and break their head open and that would be an evil thing to do. But you can also take a brick and you can build a hospital. You can build a home for someone. And you, so you see, it's not the brick that decides what's wrong, but what you do with the brick that decides right or wrong. And it's the same way with money. And I want you to notice the second thing that Paul qualifies what he means by people plunging themselves into ruin and destruction by adding verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The ruin and destruction that Paul has in mind is one of a spiritual and uh, eternal and char- uh, relating to character of that nature, not that necessarily their lives here on earth will come apart. Some rich people live very happily and very contently with their riches till the end of their days here on earth. And so for rich people, Paul's not saying ultimately is that they'll come to some sort of sense of dissatisfaction with riches, but rather such desires will corrupt and deceive such an individual. And we only need to look through the scriptures to find again and again how the love of money led to all kinds of evil in the hearts of people. Consider this, for the love of money, Achan transgressed God's covenant with Israel. For the love of money, Eli's son took bribes and perverted justice. For the love of money, Israel rejected the needy among them. For the love of money, Delilah doomed Samson to death. For the love of money, prophets communed with satanic spirits. For the love of money, merchants desecrated God's temple. For the love of money, money changers robbed God's people. For the love of money, scribes exploited the estates of widows. For the love of money, Pharisees rejected the teaching of Christ. For the love of money, Judas betrayed the Savior. For the love of money, soldiers lied about the resurrection of Christ. For the love of money, Ananias and Sapphira deceived the church. For the love of money, Paul and Silas were falsely accused and beaten. For the love of money, Demetrius began a a rebellious riot in Ephesus. For the love of money, false teachers exploited Christians. And for the love of money, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10, apostates rejected the faith. And so where we have the love of money, where the love of money is, 
There is transgression, there is bribery, there is injustice, selfishness, callousness, paganism, desecration, exploitation, unbelief, betrayal, lies, deceit, violence, rebellion, exploitation, and apostasy. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we would be naive to think that the love of money has no influence on us. As there's many subtle ways that the love of money creeps into our hearts. Consider these ways that sort of beyond just sort of the typical greed and hoarding and exploiting that we think of, of the way that the love of money is expressed in our lives. Through excessive bondage to de- to debt to procure what we desire. That we put ourselves, we spend money we don't have to buy things, not necessarily because they're a great investment, but predominantly because we want something now. We want it sooner. That our heart needs to be satisfied immediately without patience. When we refuse to pay those whom we owe, although we have the means or the money to pay them. Another way that we express the love of money is managing money as if God intended it only for your benefit or for your family's benefit alone. That when you get a raise, that when you get something extra that you didn't expect, it's something for your vacation, your portfolio. It's for your family, for your kids, not even taking into consideration in your budget that perhaps God wants you to give some of that or to honor someone else with that or invest it elsewhere that will have eternal value. Consider this one, always giving but never sacrificially. That our money inwardly, even though we give regularly, we never do so in a way that actually costs us something that actually costs us something, that we would have to give something up in order to give this money. Consider pursuing income to the neglect of your other God-given responsibilities, that you, in the name of having financial stability and providing for your family, you spend long hours at work, you invest there, but you fail to invest long hours in your family's spiritual health, instructing your children, loving your wife, spending time with the people of God. And lastly, a subtle way is how we react sinfully, I would say so, when we're in need of money. And so how do you react when you're in need of money? Does it lead to anxiety that you don't really trust that God will provide for you? Does it lead to anger and bitterness that other people have more money than you? Does it lead to pride that it's not only just a matter of working, but working excessively and putting everything you have to achieving more and more and more rather than working alongside with trusting in God and casting your cares upon him? You know, someone once said, money never made any man rich. Money never made any man rich. And I think Jesus would agree as he condemned the man who pursues a life of becoming rich as his primary goal as a fool, commenting in Luke 12, 12, 21. So is the one who lays up for himself or herself treasure and is not rich towards God. 
woe to the one who is physically and earthly and has earthly riches, who is not rich towards God and is spiritually enriched, who loves God. And so Paul knew that it was likely many who loved money would ultimately walk away from the faith. Experiencing many self-inflicted wounds of sorrow, he says at the end of the verse, inflicting themselves with many pangs, that they're piercing their soul with sorrows. And the worst of that was eternal damnation as they ultimately walked away from the faith and rejected Christ. And one thing for you to consider is that as we're thinking through this, do you know Christ? Are you following him? Have you trusted in him in the forgiveness of your sins and been reconciled to God? Have you escaped that eternal damnation? And if you do claim to be a Christian already, is there evidence in your life that says that is true, that you are really following in the ways of Christ? Well, We began this sermon starting with a tragedy that happened on the Challenger in 1986. And a lot of times we ask ourselves, how could something like that happen? So many intelligent people working so diligently to miss something so small and to cause that type of devastation. But the truth is, it wasn't a matter of their, their training or their intelligence or their education, that was really the problem. It was a matter of being blind to their ambition, to their greediness, to their achievements. They were blind to them. And so the thing we must also be careful of is that we do not act arrogantly the same way but rather we perceive this fa- these false teachers and this false teaching. That we don't succumb to the notion that somehow we'll never fall into this or it has no influence, influence on us. Don't be naive. Don't be deceived. If it was possible in scripture for the people who once had Paul as their pastor, for people who are instructed by someone who is instructed directly from Christ, it can certainly happen to this church, to the people here. And so stay on guard. Don't ignore the warnings. Heed God's word about false teachers and false teachings and consider where your own faith is at and whether you are following Christ, pursuing contentment and not pursuing after false things like excess riches and things that will not last and go into eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I pray that for us as individuals and as, as a congregation, that we would be not naive or arrogant as to think we are impervious to, to error, to false teaching, to the character that false teaching produces, Lord, but that you would make sin on our hearts obvious to us, that you would use your Holy Spirit and you would convict us, Lord, of, uh, 
of our sins, of where we need to change, Lord, and that ultimately we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers, Lord, that we would respond um, to your word with genuineness, with affection, and with authenticity of wanting to become more like Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word and its precision and for what you have done through the ministry of your apostle Paul in giving us this portion of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.